Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I used to rob banks in the 80s and 90s and did 23 years in prison in three different states. It took 30 years to talk about the sexual abuse that happened to me and the spiral into crime, addiction and depression that all occurred as a result. Now, having turned my life around, I talk openly to inspirational people about trauma, survival, transformation and hope. I am Russell Manser and this is The Stick Up. Ten-time world Muay Thai champion and Australian boxing champion. He's had 110 victories from 149 fights, 56 by way of knockout. He's got his own Gold Coast gym called Bunchu, which means blessed by the gods. I tell you, he's been blessed by inner strength and courage. Welcome to the stick up, John Wayne Parr. Hey, easy. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. Often um, I describe John Wayne Parr as the uh, Don Bradman of combat sports internationally. I was recently in Manchester and I, I was th- someone, I was talking to people in the fight game about you and they said, oh, he'd have bodyguards and all that sort of stuff and because and, you're in, held in such high regard internationally and... Um, and I said, no, you can just go to his gym and, and say good day. And they said, no way. Yeah. And people said, oh, we'll book a holiday just to go and do it. Muay Thai, there's not much money. So so same same with the business. Um, a lot of people freak out when they answer the phone, when they ring up about classes. It's like, I can't believe I'm talking to you. It's very good in Australia that we have uh, – there, there's so many sportsmen that if we, if you excel at something, at the end of the day, you're just one of the one of the people in the street because everyone's used to seeing you every day. Uh, whereas you, I go to interstate or overseas, all of a sudden you become a bit of a star. Oh, Sean Wayne. But when you're, when you're local and you see me every day, they just sort of give you the chin wag and then that's about it. But, um, yeah, it's nice when you go interstate and you realize, oh, hang on a second, I am somebody. Where did the journey start, mate? What did you want to be when you were a kid? Uh, from about four years old, um, I've always had this desire to be a, a fighter. Uh, I used to watch the, the the martial arts movies and Monkey Magic and Karate Kid. <laughs> and, yeah, it just inspired me to want to protect myself and uh, protect other people and uh, if they ever get into an altercation that I could um, be confident enough to hold my own. Um, and then we lived on horse properties and lo- on farms, so we're away from civilization. I was by myself a lot, didn't have any brothers or sisters. Where did you grow up? Everywhere. Uh, so I was born in Albury and then we, we, we moved a lot as a kid. So, so growing up, I ended up going to 11 different schools. Um, I was always um, by myself because we lived on properties as well. Um, once we finished school, once I got home, I, there was no interaction with other people. I'd always be by myself. Did you, did you in, in, in that move in all those different schools, did you ever any, encounter anyone that was brave enough to try bullying you? Uh, I was pretty lucky. And, and you soon learn to be a, a chameleon. You, you blend in very fast. You learn how to um, just uh, observe, look, see who's who's who and who's the cool kids and, and um, not make much of a scene and be very quiet. And then once you realise who was who, then you start sort of hanging out with the cool guys and starting getting accepted by the those ones. And then um yeah, but that my passion was always martial arts. I always wanted no there was no distractions. I always wanted to be a fighter. What was that? What was the first martial art you took up? Uh, taekwondo. Yeah. So at the age of eleven, uh, the opportunity came. There was a there was a, a little church about oh, five streets away from my house. So I got permission from my parents to, to, to go there at night time by myself and come back by myself as long as I didn't talk to any strangers on the way home. And then, um, yeah, I did, did Taekwondo for about a year and a half and then I uh, got my first karate gi and then you'd hear the snap of the... The gi, gi. is the, is the, gi is the, the, the uniform. uniform, yeah. yeah. So when you do a punch, it'll make a little crack noise when you do a punch or when you do a front kick or a, a kick, it, the the sound of the whipping 
would make a little crack noise with the end of the pad. So and you're hooked, mate. Yeah, I felt like a, a superhero. Yeah, it was very, very cool. So they, I did that for about a year and a half. Um, but there wasn't many students back then, so they ended up um, closing shop. And then about six months there, a bit sort of didn't know what to do. And then luckily, um, kickboxing ended up starting in the same hall. Bloodsport, mate. Was that yeah. one of your favourite movies? Oh, for sure. That was awesome. Yeah, Bloodsport yeah. and Van Damme. Van Damme was uh, definitely a hero. Yeah. Yeah, once kickboxing, once I started kickboxing, all of a sudden we could punch to the head, because Taco know there's only punches to the body. We punch to the head, we could leg kick, we could do all these different manoeuvres. And then it's like, and then just happened, the movie Kickboxer came out at the same time as I started the kickboxing. It's like, how good is this? This guy goes to Thailand, he emerges himself with the, in the, with the ties. It's like, this is, this is me. This was that the beginning of your dream, or yeah, your that, journey through that, Thailand? That was the one. That was the one. Is that what inspired you? That, oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to walk in Van Dam's footsteps um, so bad. And then, yeah, luckily, um, had my first fight at the age of 14. And then we moved to Melbourne not long after my first fight. And then we moved to Melbourne. And at Melbourne, you weren't allowed to fight till, uh over 18. And I was only 16 at that stage. So, yeah, sort of... Did you jack up your age or you'd give that a shot or...? Oh, no, I was just in no man's land. I just thought I'd get as good as I can. So when I do get old enough to fight, at least I'll be prepared. Yeah, yeah. And then we moved back to Queensland at 16. And then that's when I could continue my fight career. And then um, when we got to Queensland, they, they did Muay Thai instead of kickboxing. Yeah. So then there was uh, knees and elbows and everything else. That's when the fun began. That, that's, that's when it just started going crazy. Started getting uh, more and more opportunities to compete. And so had about three or four fights in Muay, in Muay, in Muay Thai. Yeah. Yeah. And then had the opportunity to fight for the um, Australian super lightweight title at 63 kilos at uh, 17 years old. Um, and then I fought a gentleman who was about 35 years old at that stage. So 17 versus 35. Um, he sold out the arena with all his fans. And then um, it was just me, my parents, and a couple of mates from school. So as, as I walked to the ring, I got a bit of a golf clap. And, then he, and when he walked out, the roof, come, the roof come off the building. It was insane. He was very popular, which I didn't know until I, I've heard the uh, uh, ovation for his when he's walk out. I was like, holy shit, what am I doing here? And then, yeah, luckily I got the stoppage, got the win, got the belt. For, yeah. That was your first belt? Yeah, Australian title at uh, 17 years old. Wow. Tell me about your journey to Thailand. Man, that's amazing what you did over there. Like, it's a lot of people who, who don't know Muay Thai, John Wayne Parr's uh, journey to go and do what he did in Thailand, I think you were one of the pioneers to go and do it, weren't you? Yeah, at um, the age of 19, 1996, I got the sponsored to, to go and live in Thailand for six months. Um, so I went over there to, to save money. Uh, Richard, who owns the the Bunshu restaurant on the Broad Beach, he um he sponsored me to go over. He said to save money, um you can you can share a room with my brother. So I arrive in Thailand, meet the brother for the first time who couldn't speak English, and then we walk upstairs and he shows shows us his bedroom. He said, "Oh, this is a double mattress we'll be sharing." I said, like, "Oh, we're sharing a double mattress. Oh, cool." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and he was a big set guy too. So I took up like a one quarter of the bed, and he took up three quarters of it. And then, um, yeah, we lived like that for three months. And while you are just sleeping at night? Yeah, we just, just just two fellas that didn't know how to... It was all hand signals too, because we couldn't talk to each other because I didn't know how to speak Thai. The camp I was at was, had lots of Westerners. There, there was a only camp in Thailand that had Westerners. No other camp would accept the Westerners back then because um, the Thais didn't want to show their secrets to the Westerners in case we started getting better at the sport and start beating them. Mm. They didn't really train us at well we do three rounds on the pads and then you end up on the bag for 25 30 rounds by yourself 25 30 rounds yeah, wow yeah, it was it was quite uh quite boring especially for three months just sitting there kicking the bag for three months by myself I'm like, what am i here i could be back in australia um but luckily i had my first fight had a win 
What's the big stadium there? What is it? Uh, there's two stadiums. There's Rajanamundan and Lumpini. Lumpini. Yeah. And is Lumpini like the, the mecca of stadiums? Yeah. So so Lumpini's Tuesday, Friday, Saturday, and then... Um, and they Raj- fight Raj- there every every day, yeah? Yeah, and Rajanamundan's the other day. Yeah, so wow. so they, they share the days between the week. Yeah, so after my first fight in, in Padilla, I'd, I jumped in a bus and I went to, to Bangkok. And then I so happened the superstar uh, at the camp, um, he came to Australia to have a fight. And he met Richard, my sponsor. And then um, they got off uh, like, like a house on fire. They got on really well. So when the same thing came back to Thailand, he came to the camp, come pick me up, and then took, took me to his camp, which I was the first Western ever accepted into their camp. And then um, from there, yeah, just stayed there for the next four years. And um, Four years? Yeah, had about 35 fights for that camp in, in Thailand. Ended up winning um, two world titles and fighting at Lumpini and all the Rajam Dern and all that sort let's of stuff. Let's go back to Let's go back to I'm really interested. Like, what were the conditions like in that in that camp, were they? So, yeah, this is this is the fun part. So uh, yeah. I rock up to the camp and then they give me a tour. The the boxer room, it's um it's just a, a open floor room. And then all the fighters sleep on a wooden floor side by side um, like a dorm. Mm. Um, there's no beds it's just wooden floor so you put your pillow down um, you put like a little blanket down on the floor so so the blanket's your bed on top of the wood I try to pick a, the spot next to the wall so I only have one person beside me instead of two people so you you wake up you, you brush your teeth you all run together train together and after training you, you you shower, you all eat together, you all nap together, you wake up What was up the food like? Together. What sort of food were you eating? So what you have for dinner is what you have for breakfast. So yeah. There's no bread, there's no cornflakes, there's no toast. There's no, no dairy, there's nothing. There's no, uh, yeah, so so it's rice for breakfast, rice for dinner, maybe wow. noodles for lunch, but yeah, pretty much rice every single meal. You're synonymous worldwide amongst all sportsmen for your toughness. Do you, do you think those conditions really laid the platform for that toughness, living with those for the, in four years, over sleeping on floors and... Yeah, so I didn't mention the toilet. So, um, <laughs> okay, so the the, okay. the, the, the Thai toilet was a, a squat toilet. So it wasn't a sit down one; it was a squat one. And then we had no toilet paper. So there's a big basin with a, a plastic floating tub that sit on top of the water. So every time you did number two, you'd, you'd uh, put this basin in the water, and then you'd pour the water in your hand to wipe your bum. Mm. So for, so for four years, that'd make no, me tough. Had had no toilet paper <laughs> for four years. Slept on a wooden floor for four years. Um, we didn't have any tables or chairs, so you sit on the wooden floor to eat your meals as well. So, so for our meals, we'd have four or five dishes in the center. Everyone gets a plate of rice. And then um, you go one tablespoon of uh, the meat or whatever's in the middle at, at a time. And then it's like a community meal. So you're sharing. You're not just um, hogging the food. You're all t- tablespoon at a time, tablespoon at a time. Um, so, so you're a community. And living in those conditions, all you want to do is dream about being successful. Because you're in the poorest of the poor, you're, you're living on the floor, you're, you're wiping wiping your butt with your hand, you're, 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 all you dream about is being successful and um, and the only person that's stopping you is your opponent. And every day you're getting totally annihilated by the trainers too, they're just yelling at you, uh, you gotta be, you're expected to train harder every single day. Was there an expectation of you being a, a, a foreigner to, 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 be, to be better than them all? Um, well, back then there wasn't many Westerners in the in the nineties. In the nineties, there was about only five or six Westerners in in all of Thailand that were competing. Yeah. So I was very lucky to be there in the early days when. Um, but in that camp, you're the first Westerner to get accepted in that camp. That, that camp, yes. Oh, no, in Thailand in general, there's only three or four maybe successful Westerners at that stage, but there wasn't many superstars at all. So it was really easy to shine because there wasn't any Westerners to look at. And then when a white guy steps in the ring and then there's the stadium's full of ties and you're expected to lose, and then, and then you win. Yeah. And then the next day you're in all the papers and the magazines, and if you fought on TV, um, 
the next day when you're walking down the local street, everyone's yelling out, hey, I watched your fight yesterday. Hey, I win money for you. Yay, congratulations. <laughs> you, you'll make me money. Or, or when you lose, I can't believe I lost money. <laughs> 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 um, and then even running down the street, people would flash their headlights and beep their horns because you were the, the guy. You were the, you were the, you were, where I lived in um, Bangkok, um, I was the only Westerner. So um, I, I stood out like a sore thumb and then I'd walk in the shops or the mall and, and then the kids would grab their mum and tug them on the shirt and go, what, well, this guy, he doesn't look like us. He's so they'd only seen Westerners on TV. To see a, re- a Western in real life was a big eye-opener for them. So Wild Wild West for Muay Thai for sure. Mate, the, the conditions um, that you lived in, in, in Thailand sound very similar to the conditions I spent 23 yeah. years in prison, but I'll be honest with you, we had a bed in prison. It was definitely trying. Uh, uh, sleeping on the floor was, um, but you're so tired from training. You're doing three hours in the morning, three and a half hours in the afternoon. Um, what kept you there? What kept you there? Did, did, did you ever feel a need to want to go home and have a nice bed and some comfort? Uh, so it was a vicious circle. So I would get homesick and then I'd, uh, let's say we're doing a, a five-week camp so you train, 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 train in six, six, seven hours a day. And then um, this is my last one. I'm done. After this one, I'm going home. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. And then you go to the stadium, you win. Next minute, you're in the papers, you're on the TV, you're in the magazines. It's like, oh, how good is this? Yeah. So then you start training again. Then you realize how much you hate it again. And then, oh, this is the last one. And then there's that vicious cycle where you just make the papers, get the TV again. And it just, uh, that inspires you to want to stay longer and longer and longer. So what started out of six months ended up turning the, to four years. So wow. it, was, um, it, was, it was very awesome. It was very cool. Mate, you're a glutton for fucking yeah. pain, man. And, and what, what, what's the mindset of it all, mate? Like, I, I tell you, I was, I was talking to someone the other day about it. I said, this bloke gets punched in the face. Yeah. Like, his eyebrows split in half or yeah. something like that. And he, he, congratulates, like, he congratulates the yeah. person who just done it to him. What's your mindset when that happens, mate? What are you thinking? Um, success. <laughs> yeah. Success. I want to. I wanted to be a world champion from the age of eleven. That's all I ever wanted. I didn't matter if I was sleeping on the floor. Or I was on the floor wiping my butt with my hand. At the end of the day, I, I wanted to be the greatest. Um, every time I blew out my birthday candles, I just wanted to be a world champion. When you look up and you see the, the single stars, like oh, I want to be a world champion. I want to be a world champion. That's all that ever yeah. consumed me. That nothing else ever mattered. There's no plan B. And my whole desire was just to be successful and the most successful Australian fighter ever. And I think I come pretty close. Oh, mate, without <laughs> a doubt. Like, I, I say that, I talk about <laughs> you being the Donald Bradman, the Andrew Johns, the Gary Ablett. <laughs> Of combat sport, there's, there's, mate. I'll tell you, I can give you the, I can give you the tip, mate. You definitely achieved that and more. The best part was there, there was no social media back then either, so I wasn't doing it for for Facebook likes or Instagram likes. Um, uh, if I wanted to, to communicate with my mum, I'd have to write a letter. Um, I'd go to the post office. I'd send the letter away. It was seven days to get there, and then a seven days for a reply. And then she had no idea about kickboxing either. So I'd, I'd write to mum, hey mum, you wouldn't believe it. I get the fight in the, the famous Lumpini Stadium. I'm the first Aussie ever to fight there. And then two weeks later, I get a play. Congratulations, son. I have no idea what you're talking about. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's a big deal. <laughs> so yeah, it was a different era. And then um, I was only making $500 a fight. And then you'd have to give half that to the camp. Um, and then I, I gradually worked my way up to make like $1,000. So then you get 500 to the camp. So it was a 50-50 split. So I'd stay at the camp for free. I'd uh, eat twice, two meals a day for free. I'd get two training sessions a day. And then af- after my fight, that get 50-50 split. So which you didn't mind because um, the money wasn't important. It was more about the success than trying to make a dollar. So you're fighting these proper killers from... When I went to the higher stage, I was making a 1000 which was 500 bucks after I split it. 
But yeah, and then you see these guys fighting for UFC, and they're making half a million dollars, and they're complaining that they're 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 not making more. It's like, man, you just made a half a million bucks. Yeah. How, how could you be sad? That's that's awesome. You're doing exactly the same thing as I'm doing, and you're making twenty times the amount. Yeah, it's uh, people have sort of lost their hunger, I guess. For they, they they see the dollar signs instead of the the end goal of um leaving a legacy. Just tell us a bit about the first time you fought in Lumpini Stadium. So the first time I fought there, I'd fought for the promoter whose name uh, Mr. Songchai. Uh, he was the number one promoter in Thailand, the superstar of our camp. He was fighting for him in the country show, and then um, I went to, with him to support him on, on the fight. And we got to the weigh-in, and then there was a very famous French fighter called Danny Bill. He was supposed to fight on the card, and and he never turned up. And then the promoter had promised the the mayor of that town or whatever that was going to have a famous Western on there, and there's no there was no Westerner there. And I go, oh, what am I going to do? The Danny Bill's what we've already promised. We've got money from the government. We need a Westerner. And my trainer put his hand up and said, oh, I go, I'll fight. The promoter looked at me up and down. He's like, ah, I don't know who this guy is. I can't put him against the Westerner because I don't know who he is, and I don't want to get him killed. He said, uh, is there anyone in the room that wants to fight this Westerner? And 30 hands went up. Oh, holy shit. Holy <laughs> shit, this isn't good. So they, they put all these different ties beside me to see who was the closest in height and weight. They said, all right, uh, this one, you're gonna, you'll fight him tomorrow. It's like, ah, uh, done. It was an outside show. Um, so what happens is that the promoter gets paid by the, the TV. So if he does an outdoor, outdoor show, um, it's a free event. So people drive for hours to come and watch these shows to see the superstars in the flesh. Um, so the, my very first fight for this guy was in front of 40,000 people in, in this big park in the middle 40, of nowhere. 40,000. 40,000. Yeah. yeah. That's so Paramount Stadium. So uh, um, I walk out there. I win the first four rounds. In the last round in the fifth, I get cut. Um, I still walk forward. I still beat this guy up. And then up winning on points. And the promoter's like, that was amazing. I want to sign you to my company. So then I had a couple more fights for him to, to sort of get my groove and get my name up there. And after the, my third fight, he said, oh, you've been doing so well. Um, I'd like to promote you on my Lumpini show. I was like, holy crap, really? So at this stage, no other Aussie had ever fought Lumpini before, so I got to be the very first. I was so nervous and so scared and so apprehensive. I remember I crossed the ropes, and as my foot hit the canvas, it didn't matter if I won or lost, I was the first Aussie, no matter what happened. So no one could take that away from me, being the first Aussie. And then uh, the first two rounds, I wasn't doing so well. I was I was losing, and then I sat back down into the second, and my Trainer gave me a growling. What are you doing? You got to be more aggressive. You got to walk in. I started picking up, and then when I started landing, um, the the tide of the the crowd changed, and every time I threw a technique, the crowd would start roaring behind me, roaring, roaring, and then that that gave me more energy and more enthusiasm to to be more aggressive, and then ended up knocking him out in the fourth round, and the fight was stopped, and he gets taken out in the stretcher and. The realization of I've uh, been not only in the first Aussie, but I actually won by knockout. It was definitely a dream come true. And then the promoter was so happy. He said, "Oh, we're going to put you on another Lumpini show. But this time, we'll put you live on TV as well." Wow. So uh, I don't know if you know much about Muay Thai, but but before every event, that they, they do a little dance called the Ramoy. I love yours. You've got the best. It's usually, when they do the dance at the end of the dance. They try and intimidate their opponent, so they might shot, uh, throw a bow and arrow or dig a grave or something crazy. So uh, me and my one of my Thai buddies would come up with an idea. Why don't, why don't we make it a cowboy theme? Your name's John Wayne. We'll, we'll shoot some handguns. We'll, we'll do two arrows, throw the bow and arrow away, and then we'll shoot the guns. My first fight, uh, my second fight at Lumpini, live on TV. Um, I've, I've done the dance, got to the end. I've started shooting the arrows. I threw the arrows away, and I've shot these, these six shooters at this guy. And then I got a standing ovation from the Thais in the crowd. I was like, whoa, this is insane. I was so happy. How many, was in, that, how many was in that crowd? That, that? Uh, about 10,000. Yeah, wow. 
been live on Taiva TV too. It was yeah. uh, it was massive. Um, when that winning that fight by second round knockout. So a few days later, the number one magazine they bring in the camp. They said, "Oh, we'd love to do a story on John Wayne to find more about his history." So oh, we needed to do a photo shoot. We go out to the park. We've got the gloves and I've got my shorts on and um, we're doing all these poses. And then the photographer's like, "All right, I need you to look really, really staunch because um, this is for the cover." Excuse me. <laughs> he goes, oh, "You didn't know? Oh yeah, this is for the cover. This is for the front page. You'll be the first ever Westerner for our magazine for the front page." Yeah. Like, Holy shit! This is amazing. This is so cool. So yeah, so we did all these photos and did all these things and got a, like a six-page write-up and then made the cover and then um, for the next four days, wherever we went around Bangkok, you see these. Post, uh, magazines hanging up on all the different um, news agents and 7-Elevens and wherever you went, my face was everywhere. And it's like, oh, this is the dream. This is, is actually happening. This is so cool. So um, I bought multiple magazines for my parents and friends and family. And like I said before, there's no social media. Yeah. So I couldn't just put it online. I had to wait to get home to give actual hard copies to my friends. But um, yeah, it was definitely a, a pinch yourself moment. Mate, it was all, all, it was all business in Thailand. It was just fighting, training. <laughs> Uh, living and breathing Muay Thai. Now, mate, what brought you back to Australia? Um, so I ended up getting a, a shin infection. Uh, I woke up one morning and I had like a golf ball-sized lump on, on my on my shin. Mm. And it was, uh, it was all red and infected from my knee to my ankle. And then uh, I'm like, oh, this isn't good. This is uh, a bit painful. So I walked downstairs to show my trainer. And he goes, I know exactly what this is. We have to go to the hospital right now. So we jump on the back of the motorbike, we, we go to the hospital, and I'm waiting, waiting in the waiting room, and, and the nurse comes out, and she looks at my shin, she goes, oh, I know what look, this is, this is going to be very painful, I'll get the doctor for you. And, oh, jeez, that doesn't sound good. So the doctor comes in, we, we go into the room, he looks at my shin, he goes, oh, I know what this is, this is going to be very painful. And I'm thinking, fuck, stop saying that already, <laughs> I'm already freaking out already, they don't have to keep reminding me. This guy. The doctor says, oh, because of the golf ball size lump, um, there's a bit of an infection in there. We can't give you a local anesthetic because there, there's so much fluid that you know, the, the local's not going to work. So what we've got, we've got this magic cold spray. I'm going to spray that on your leg, numb the area, and then we'll lance it to get the infection out. So the, the spray is very cold though. So I'm going to do it on the count of three. Are you ready? One, two, and then in between two and three, he lanced me without even spraying the spray just to try and get my mind off the... And then uh, my leg was over like this steel trough and blood just uh, volcanoed out of this cut and just like uh, end up having a an incision in my in my shin that went down to my second knuckle and my pinky um, and then they said we can't stitch her we have to let it wait from the, from the grow from the inside out to heal so you you can't kick on that leg for the next three months so I've gone back home laying in bed the the first morning I wake up I hear the tires kicking the pads at six thirty in the morning it's like oh man I can't stay here for three months not being able to train or fight and not making any money um, I think I might be time to go home. So yeah, that was time to um, go and have a chat with the trainer and let him know that I'm, I'm, I think I need to go back to Australia. And he was so pissed. I went downstairs, I seen the main guy, I said, oh, look, I think it might be time for me to to um, head back home now, since I can't kick. And this is after four years? Yeah, this is after four years. And because I was his main source of money, yeah, 50% of my prize money after every fight, and then all of a sudden his cash cow was just about to leave. Yeah. So he was filthy. So he didn't. I told him I, I want to go back to Australia. He's looked me dead in the eyes and just gave me the cold shoulder and walked away. How many fights had you had, had over there at that stage? Uh, about 35. Wow. And what was your record over there? 30. Ooh, yeah, not I was, a bad strike I was doing rate. Really well. I was doing really well. I won my first nine straight, and it wasn't. And then my tenth fight, I fought my, fought my first A grade tied, and he ended up cutting me uh, twenty one stitches with elbows. 
and like twenty one stitches on like two different cuts with that took twenty one stitches to put me together. Have you ever uh, done a stitch count? I, I'm up to three fifty. Three hundred and fifty stitches. Yeah, from elbows. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so so I tell the doctors when they put me together, sets of five. So five, ten, fifteen, twenty, and then it's easy to remember. So <laughs> so so it's got to the stage now. So I don't give me a four or a seven because it's going to yeah. mess up most of the. I hate to be out of yeah. man. I'm big yeah. on this. Uh, luckily, through my sponsor Richard and another gentleman called um, Jim Gloftus. Uh, they they helped fund my first gym, so I had put a gym together in, in Mermaid, and then the second we opened it within a couple of weeks, I'd already had like thirty forty members straight away. So back here in Australia, yeah. once you got back, so you you come back, established a, a Muay Thai gym, and yep. and then Muay Thai was sort of um, going really well. Then at the stage, well, there was lots of fight promotions um, every month. The, the sport was already popular in Australia. Yeah, and then because I'd already done so much overseas, when I got back here, um, yeah, people were frothing to come and train with me. I remember my first introduction to, to Muay Thai. I was um, working for Divine Homes as a sales manager, a salesman, and um, uh, a bloke from Liverpool, England, told me, he said, mate, you've got to come and watch this. And um, I, I went, and, and it was your fight versus Scotty, uh, Scotty the Cannon Bannon. And, and at the time, mate, he was a big name. He, he was invincible. I think he was, was it a world title, that one? Yeah, yeah it was a world title. And um, and everyone just thought he, it was going to be an easy night for Scotty on you. And uh, it didn't turn out that way, mate. And, and you know what? I, I, I just couldn't comprehend the brutality of the sport. Like once Ooh. I seen the elbows and that, I was thinking, geez, mate, this is like yeah. a prison fight. Yeah. Out here, legal. Yeah. And I was blown away. I was blown away by and And, and you come out and, and you put on a show with the, the six guns and that, man. And, I, man, I, and, and you've got to stand an ovation. I, I, at the end of that fight, people were just blown away like you were the new gun in town, so to speak, after that fight, you know. So what happened? Um, I come back from Thailand, end of 99, um, and then Scott Bannon was a superstar of Australia at that stage. And even though I had approximately 40 plus fights, I wasn't a world champion. I needed to be a world champion. And Scotty was, had the belt and he was at my weight. And, oh, so I rang him. I said, Hey, Scott, um, we haven't spoken for a while. Hope you're being well. Um, just a question Do, do you want to fight me by any chance? Because I really want your belt. And he's like, Ah, oh, no. He's like, No, no, I don't think that's a good idea. We're too good of friends. We shouldn't, we shouldn't fight. We should, that'll jeopardize our friendship. I'm like, Nah, that'll be okay. We can, we can put our friendship aside for the night. you got something that I really want, and I really want your belt. It took ages and ages and ages, and then one day I was on social media, and this internet had started by stage, and there was these, these forums. Out of curiosity, I've, I've seen this post from Scott Bannon, and it goes, it's finally on. This is me reading it for the first time. No one's called me, no one's running. Me and John Wayne, October, it's on, and not only are we fighting for the world title, it's a winner-take-all. I'm like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> so I gave him a call. Mate, what's what's happening? Yep, it's done. I've talked to the promoter. Me and you, we're on October World Title. I wouldn't take all. Oh, really? Winner take all is it? All right. If you want to make it a winner take all, why don't we make it a winner take all plus two grand of our own money on top? It's like, ah, uh, uh, yeah, come on. If you're so if you're so confident you're going to beat me, let's put an extra two grand each. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so it ended up being um eleven grand. All up, so it was seven. It was four plus three, four for the winner, three for the loser, and then two grand each. So it was eleven grand. So we put, uh, we we gave the money to someone in neutral in the middle. Yeah, when I walked out to the ring, I could just uh, see Scotty. He had a lot of people behind he, him, and then those didn't yeah, he? he had a lot of support. He had a lot of, lot of pressure because yeah. he sold out pretty much the whole venue. Um, even though I'd done so much overseas, I wasn't really a big name in Australia because, like I said, there's no internet back then. So when I did come home, I really wanted to make a statement to show that how much I've done overseas. Yeah, I just came out super aggressive, and then I could see in his eyes that he didn't want to be there, so I just jumped on him and um, ended up getting the second round knockout Yeah, to, to take the belt. That, that was my first world title, 2000. 
Um, two months later, I had the opportunity to, to travel the, to Bangkok um, to fight on the king's birthday in front of 100,000 people in the middle of a park in Bangkok, uh, live on Thai TV. And then at the weigh-in, the promoter, Mr. Songchai, he goes, oh, look, that guy was going to fight someone else, but he's pulled out. So we have this other gentleman, uh, Orono, the one that cut your 21 stitches, the first A-grade toe that you fought. He needs an opponent, so I'm, I'm going to match you with him tomorrow instead. And then uh, the, the, guy, the first guy I was supposed to fight, he was orthodox. And then the, he changed the opponents on me at the weigh-in, who was a southpaw. Yeah, meaning right foot oh, forward, and he's yeah, a right. So and, and I haven't and trained for a southpaw. Yeah. So I rang my trainer, and I said, Sengden, they've, they've changed my opponents. What should I do? He goes, ah, you'll be right. Um, take it, it's exciting. Yeah. Well, that's the mecca, to go yeah. over there. It's like playing soccer in, in Manchester or something like that, isn't it? So, Orono was the most famous Thai in Thailand at the time too, so every time we come out, the crowd would just go crazy. Orono, Orono. Mm-hmm. And then um, all night, I'm tossing and turning and freaking out because he gave me 21 stitches last time. Mm. It was the most painful tie I'd ever fought at that stage and uh, I really didn't want to fight him again. So the next day, we we'll wake up and I see Seng Ten. I say, Seng Ten, today's tomorrow. What was the game plan? He goes, all right, so Orono's a southpaw. Um, last time he cut you with the left elbow. So I think tonight you should fight southpaw. Southpaw versus southpaw. That's the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> he goes, no, no, no. And then he explained to me, uh, if, if you stand southpaw and have your right hand forward, that means he can't land his left elbow. Mm. So they better use it as, as a defense. So it sort of made sense, but um, I was just shitting myself for the next 12 hours, just going, how am I going to do this? I've never fought Southpaw my whole life and he's a Southpaw he's going to have all the added advantages I thought I'll do it for the first round if I'm losing I'll just go back to Orthodox in and then the, the, the fight started and then uh, everything I threw seemed to land everything he threw I got out of the way I either defended or I counted when Orono fights the crowd goes insane and it was complete silence no one was cheering because I was winning for five rounds it was just silence the whole the whole fight ended up uh, winning on points won his world title in front of 100,000 people live on Thai TV and, and a genuine world title from Thailand too, not just the... Mm. Uh, because in Australia, when I fought Scott, Scott's from Brisbane off in the Gold Coast, there's an, an hour drive. Mm. Where you, where you fight a Thai in Thailand mm. and, and you take a the title. Mecca. And that's um then, then it's real. It's a genuine title in. How did that feel, man? How oh, did that? It was... Um, I couldn't sleep for for about a week. The excitement and the adrenaline and the, the dream. The dream, Everything yeah. I dreamt, dreamt for the last 10 years it had finally come to fruition. You see some fighters... They win that dream and then that's it. The hunger's gone and they're not the fighter anymore that they were. They, you know, and especially you know, just boxing and stuff like that. You just see they win that one title. Did you ever think that'll rest on your laurels or? So my prize money was approximately a thousand, and then because, thousand bucks for the world oh, title. No, no, no. no. Uh, the, the fights before that I was about a thousand, and yeah. then um, because I won this one, I've gone from twenty thousand baht to seventy thousand baht. So that was about three and a half, and then I had to give half of that to to my camp. So I ended up with about two ish. So I still need to fight to survive because this is all I knew. This is my trade. Mm. If I didn't fight, I couldn't make money. Mm. So, um, so even though I won the belt and had the, the accolades, but I still need more money. What I was doing was surviving from fight to fight instead of having long-term or having uh, a, a nice car or a nice house. I was still just struggling. So um, I got back to Australia, had a few more fights. I started making a, a bit of a name in Japan, by the say, so I was going backwards and forwards from to Japan. Um, and then the opportunity came um, to fight at Rajendran Stadium in Bangkok in 2004. Um, this time, it, it was an eight-man tournament. So I had the fight uh, three times in one day. Uh, so uh, I fought a Russian, a French gentleman, and then I fought uh, a Thai in the final. So it was it was three threes for the first fight, three threes for the second fight, and then the final was a five threes with our elbows, um, and I won all three. 
So I ended up winning another world title, a million baht, which is about 35,000 Australian, and a trophy from the Prime Minister of Thailand at the time. So it was like um, all, all these different things, and then uh, live on Thai TV, all in the magazines, all in the newspapers, all in the radios. The next day after, uh, after I won, uh, a radio station rang my Thai trainer, and they put me on the phone, congratulations, amazing, how are you feeling? Oh yeah, it's good, good. And I gave my, the phone back to my trainer, and then the, the radio station abused my trainer, said, how could you train this Westerner to beat us at our own sport? You're a disgrace. What, what, what were you thinking? Mm. Now, now, he, now he's taking our currency out of the country to Australia. Mm. Don't you feel bad? Mm. He's like, mate, he's been with me for over four years. He's, he's part of my family. Yeah, yeah. We, we train side by side every Did day. Did you get that feeling from, you know, from them camps? Did them people sort of become like a family to oh, you? Oh, for sure. You're living together 24-7. There's, there's no privacy, you, no matter what you do, because you're living in the yeah. same room too. You live in the same room with like 10 other dudes. Yeah, that's your, that's your blood. And then over that time too, uh, when I first got there, I couldn't speak any Thai. Eventually, they start teaching you like words, and then they get to the stage where they start teaching you sentences. Mm. And then you're starting to understand more than you can say, and then you're starting to piece words together. And then by the end of it, I, I was getting fluent in Thai. So not only was I successful in the sport, but now I'm becoming one of them. Mm. I'm not just an Aussie now. I'm like a white. Do you think? Do you think the fact that you picked up the language, you got more respect oh, from them? Definitely. You know, it's, it's well established that there's not a great deal of money in Muay Thai and mate what drove you to keep going you know what I mean you you know you obviously had dreams and aspirations outside of you wanted a house and stuff like that as most people do what, what drove you uh, money is one thing as long as I got food in my stomach and a bit of shelter but then my main thing was legacy um, I know that I'm not going to be on this earth forever but I want to be remembered after I do pass I, I want my legacy like a Muhammad Ali or there's a gentleman who's really good at Muay Thai from Holland called uh, Raymond Deckers um, I wanted to be that guy, so when I pass, my, my legacy will continue and I can help young people to strive to want to be great also. Money's good, but at the same time, I think legacy is more important than than living the lifestyle. And, and then um, even though it sucked being poor, it's a good motivator to, to be successful. Mate, wow, I'm blown away. Um, you know, a, a lot of sportsmen, whether it be a rugby league player or a boxer, and in particular boxer in UFC, they're obviously the main, you see these stories of the Mexicans and the, the success story of the Mexican is they drive back in a Cadillac, you know yeah. what I mean? That That's the sign of success that they've, a Cadillac and a gold chain, man. So, man, that's that's a, that's amazing. You, you weren't ever attempted to sort of go into any, like, boxing or anything like that where the money was? A friend of mine, Paul Briggs, um, he'd, just um, he he, I got him a Muay Thai fight in the '99, and then um, he had bad legs and varicose veins, and his legs blew up. He goes, "Oh, I can't kick anymore. My legs are done." I said, "Why don't you box? Um, boxing, same same lifestyle. Get the train, get the fight, get the compete, get to make the TV, get to make the magazine, still get to live off the prize money." That's oh, a good idea. It's a good idea. So we got him a boxing fight. He won that, and there was a gentleman called Rod Waterhouse. I was sitting in the Andrew yeah, Royalty, mate, in the, in the crowd. He was just happened yeah, to be there by yeah. by pure fluke. And then uh, he's contacted Paul. He goes, "Mate, I happened to watch your fight last night. I think you can be a genuine um, world champion for Australia. Um, if you if you're serious, and you want to do this, come and see me." So he went to Rod's house. They had a meeting. So Paul ended up having two, three, four fights for Rod, and I'm, I was still doing my Muay Thai at that stage. And uh, after a short period of time. Paul all of a sudden had all these sponsors and fighting on Fox Sports and making the magazines. And I'm thinking, fuck, this is this sucks. I'm doing all this stuff for Muay Thai and I can't even get a, a little column in the local newspaper, let alone making the TV or the newspapers. Maybe it might be time to... The, the, the grass is greener in boxing. I, I might jump ship and, 
give this boxing a go. So after I'd won the world title in Thailand, um, I retired from Muay Thai and I, I and I talked to Rod and I said, oh, I think I want to give this a crack. So end up having um, uh, nine fights for Rod. It was very, very, very successful. Got the fight for the Australian title, won the Australian middleweight title after my seventh fight. But then the money wasn't that flashy. It was only, it was not, I think the most I ever made from boxing was six grand. Um, I fought 12 rounds three times and then, um, yeah, six grand was the high as it went. I'm a boxing enthusiast and I, I thought you were a, a phenomenal boxer. I really did. I think I was really, uh, I, I thought there was a few, uh, one decision in particular and I think um, that you were robbed in, you know what I mean? Maybe even two, two. Yeah. And, and I think, and I've I seen something on uh, you on the news and that, and I think that's when you'd had enough of boxing and you sort of threw it in. I mean, I, th- I thought you were a phenomenal boxer. I really did. I really, I was a big fan. I won the Australian title after my seventh fight. I ended up losing my belt. Um, a gentleman called Ian McLeod. That was um, in surface, wasn't it? That was in surface. Yeah. So he, he broke his hand in the first, and then he held me for 11 rounds, and then he didn't get one warning. He got jab, jab, hold, hold for 30 seconds, referee break us up. He got jab, jab, hold for 30 seconds, referee break us up. He did that for 11 rounds, and then somehow rather he won and took my belt off me. I was so broken hearted and so so how can you hold someone for 11 rounds and win you gave it away after that is yeah, that, that right that was the one that broke me I, said, oh, I can't do this anymore how can if you're not gonna fight and still win um, I'm done I'm gonna go back to Muay Thai again and it just happened the king's birthday was almost around that time as well on the, on the 5th of December so I jumped on a plane flew back to Thailand talked to the promoter got on the card and then uh, yeah I was very lucky to be in a 8 man tournament where I won um, 2 fights in 1 night First fight, second fight, and then the two finalists got to represent Thailand in France six minutes later. So um, yeah, that, was, that was amazing as well. So and that that, that inspired me to, to start my Muay Thai journey again. Even though I, I, I like boxing and I like the money and uh, I like the making on the Fox Sports and the magazines, and there was no real overseas adventures because mm. I was so used to traveling to Japan and Thailand and going overseas and making ways for Australia. Being stuck in Australia, I was I was getting cabin fever. I needed to to get back overseas again. So once I started my Muay Thai again, all of a sudden, offers started coming from Holland, France, Italy, uh, Jamaica. So uh, end of my boxing career, end of two thousand and one, I, I I had this calling for America. I got to get yeah. to America. for some reason. I got to get to America. So I put a thing on the one of the um, kickboxing forums. Is there any trainers in America that want a uh, Australian trainer or pad holder? Or, and then within half an hour, I get a, a reply from a gentleman called Master Toddy. He was a Thai gentleman that, that established himself in America. He said, we'd love to have you in, over here. So he buys, buys me a ticket. And then uh, I jump on a plane a week later. I arrive in Vegas. Is I'm this like, the beginning of a love story yeah, too, mate? Yeah, so I get to, the, get, get to the Vegas. And um, there's all these posters of this girl with these gold medals and world champion belts. And um, she's absolutely a stunner. I ask everyone, who's this girl? She's everywhere. Who is this girl? Oh, her name's Angela Rivera. She um she'll be here in a couple of days. She's fighting on the same card as you in, in four weeks' time. I go to the I go to Vegas for the day, and then when I come back, there she is. Mm. And I introduce myself. Hi, good day. I'm John Wayne. She goes, Oh, I'm Angie. And then uh, for the next three four hours, we just sit like this for the next. Just look in each other's eyes, just telling stories, and it felt like we'd known each other forever. How many? She was a four-time world champion herself. Uh, two, three, three-time, three-time world champion. Two and and at, at that stage, how many? How many belts did you have? Two. 
So, so she was she, outdoing you. So she had more world titles than me. She was making more prize money than me. And she was a superstar of America. She was the most famous female in America at the time. There was a magazine called Inside Kung Fu Magazine, and she was a fighter of the year for male or female. She was the number one star. And so, were you thinking, this is marriage material? Uh, they have a, a big amateur games like the Olympics in Thailand where 130 uh, countries come and compete. Yeah. Angie went over there and she had three fights in four days. And then uh, she ended up winning the first ever gold medal for America. Yeah. So, so when she came back to the States, um, the mayor of Vegas, they had a, a proclamation where they awarded her her very own day in Vegas. Wow. Uh, it's Angela Rivera Day yeah. uh, on March whatever, 2001. And then uh, uh, 10 months later, um, I got deported. So deported. When, you go, when you go to Australia, uh, sorry, when you go to America on a tourist visa, you're only there to stay for 90 days. I was two days over my visa. So they're like, mate, you're on the next plane back to Australia. You're out of here. You're deported. So Angie's seven months pregnant. Um, we got no money. I, I, I got five grand, but um, it's not going to get us very far. So Was like, it your plan? Would it have been your plan to stay in America? Yeah. We got married on the 1st of September and the fight was in October. So we just got married. And I tried to show the my marriage certificate to the or the immigration in the, in the LA, and they're going, mate, that could be off a cereal yeah. box. Yeah, yeah. Um, unless you have the right documentation, we can't validate that. So, yeah. so you're on the next plane. So we, Angie had to sell our speed up car, our furniture, our TV to try and save up a little enough enough money to to buy a plane ticket to get to Australia. And then um, got to Australia just in time. And then a couple months later, Jazzy was born. So <laughs> so when Jazzy was born. Uh, after two days in the hospital, I said, all right, um, she's well enough to go back home now. So on the, on the way back home, I was like, oh, no, I don't have time to drop you off at home. I've got to go to the gym. I've got to teach class in half an hour. So but, um, Jazzy went straight from the hospital straight to the gym before before because I had to teach. So she was, uh, when people say you were born in the gym, she was actually pretty much born in the gym. Yeah, two days out. Yeah, two days out. <laughs> Now's the perfect time to introduce Yazzie. You've been talking about her, but she's been sitting next to you the whole time. Hello. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, you know, to watch Jazzy's journey and, and you see some kids that they've been pushed into something, but she did it. You can tell she genuinely loves the sport, you know what I mean? And and, and all, all your kids do. You can just see that they're just not trying to make their parents happy. They just, they've got that genetic hunger for the sport themselves. You know, that's evident with Jazzy, the way she fights, the way she trains. Both me and my wife both work in the gym and I'm, I'm competing, competing constantly and training constantly. Because she wasn't at school, she has to come to the gym with us. So she's got to sit in there for hours and hours. And at the age of seven, uh, Jazzy's like, oh, I want to start fighting. <laughs> yeah, this is a bit crazy. She's pretty young. But in Thailand over there, it's normal to start competing at that age. So I was like, ah, oh, maybe when you're eight, we'll, we'll get, start looking out. So on her eighth birthday, she goes, hey, I'm eight. I still want to fight. Can I fight? And then uh, me and Angie were doing promotions back at that stage. I said, all right, we'll, we'll put you on the card, put her on the poster. And uh, I rang the local newspaper. I said, oh, my, my daughter's going to compete for the first time. Is there any chance we get a little write-up just so i got something for the scrapbook for when she's older? Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. We'd come out. We did a little story. And then the reporter's like, do you mind if we come back and do a, a follow-up story? I, I come to the event and we're going to do a little write-up. Oh, yeah, for sure. No, awesome. No worries. Had the show. She loses the first round. And then she's get kicked in the leg a few different times. She's sitting in the corner and she's got a couple of tears running down her cheeks. So like, come on, Jazzy. You don't know what to do. you got to get those blocks up and use your legs and push in, blah, blah, blah. And then um, Jazzy comes back in the second and third and then it's awarded a draw. So it was a great achievement. Everyone's standing ovation. Two little girls like stole the show. It was amazing. And then all the people are throwing money into the ring because they were so happy with the entertainment. 
And uh, so the next day, I go to the news agent to get the paper to see what whatever they wrote. And then, sure enough, it was the the front page of the Gold Coast Bulletin, and there's a picture of Jazzy and another girl fighting. The caption on the photo was "Venue full of drunken yobos screaming for eight, screaming for eight year old blood." It's like, <laughs> what the hell is this? Typical journalism. Yeah, though. it was crazy. And then the next morning, it was Monday. It was bin day. So I'm just about to go downstairs and take the bins out to the street. And then I hear a knock on the door. So I go downstairs, open the door. And there's a camera in my face, and it's oh, and the lady introduced me. I'm such and such from today tonight. We're going to do a story on your daughter competing at eight years old. Uh, everyone's asleep. Uh, do you mind if you come back at eight? Yeah, when they wake up, I'm sure they'll do it, but we we'll just let us wake up first. Half an hour later, I've go downstairs, put the bins out, and then uh, they're sitting out in front of my house in the car. So I, I tap on the window, it's like, ah, oh, I thought you guys were going to come back at eight. I said, Oh, we can't leave. Um, if we leave, we're going to lose the exclusive in case another film crew come. So 8 o'clock comes, everyone's awake, we go to the gym, we do some pads, we do a little interview, everything's fun. And then the, the reporter says, a bit of word of advice, um, if I was you, I'd turn your phone off because you're the number one trending story today for, the, for Jazzy fighting at such a young age. And then from that second, the rest of the day was Courier, Mail, Bullets, and... Uh, Triple M, B105, uh, the 7 o'clock project. They're just like hounding me for a story um, all because no one could comprehend that an eight-year-old girl would compete in the ring and have her father's consent to doing it. The worst one was the 7 o'clock project. I got on that show and that ca- that, carry, that yeah. carry big more. So, John, tell me, uh, is it true that you're trying to live your dream through your daughter? What are you talking about? <laughs> I've been all over the world competing and won all these world titles and you're not once has anyone ever asked to to do a story about my career mm. because my daughter wants to live her own dream and be successful at something I'm successful at, um, all of a sudden um, you're throwing me under the bus. But Jazz, did you have any idea what was going on at the time Was the, when this was happening? Oh, I definitely knew because by the end of it, I was like, I kind of was getting over it because every day there was something. It was, there was an interview every day and I was eight years old. It was just so different and I was not expecting it at all. So by like, I think it was two weeks. It was a really hectic two weeks of being eight years old and doing interviews every single and day. And they were actually interviewing you? Yeah, 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 every day. The worst one was um, Carl Stefanovic. Mm. So they've, they've done the, the Today Show. They've shown the, the footage of Jazzy fighting. They've cut back to Carl. He's looked in deep into the camera and said that, daughter should be taken off the parents before she's seriously injured or brain damaged from competing in such a violent sport wow. and Jazzy how seemed, did that feel man how did oh, that feel J- Jazzy got up and ran out of the room crying because she couldn't believe that she, her name was being dragged through the mud mm. she was just enjoying the sport and smiling and got a trophy and got some money from all the fans and life was amazing but then when you see the all these media people just um, scrutinising our lifestyle it was um, yeah heartbreaking I just want to say as well, my whole like growing up as a child, like I did soccer, I did dancing, I did futsal, I've tried all different sports and there was not any sport that I enjoyed more than martial arts and still every day, like I'm 19 years old now and I'm still, I still train pretty much every single day and I'm in the gym every single day, twice a day. You're not involved in gangs or? No, like I am. Any social behaviour or anything? I'm doing all of the right things and I've been guided by my parents to do, to be healthy and to be active and... And humble. And humble, yeah. Like, you know, there's so many great things that you get taught from martial arts and me growing up in the sport is like, it's it's an honour. And people make it like, people ask me all the time, like, did you get made to do this? Did you? I'm like, no, like, 
I, I genuinely love the sport and now I've transitioned into boxing. I love it even more because it's like a whole new world opening up. Even though when I had my fight, there was kids my age, boys fighting and like there was nothing said about boys fighting. Yeah. It was not a problem at all. But because I was a young girl, eight years old fighting, it was the end of the world. My company, um, the voice of a survivor, like we, we identified you as a strong independent woman who would like to to sponsor and be a representative of our company, you know what I mean? Because of that, look at you, well-rounded. You're not someone that's known to go out nightclubs getting drunk and, and, and doing stupid things or anything like that. You've got a very, very good reputation and, and your whole family has on, on the yeah. coast. And I think, did you think that played a part in that being that well-rounded as a... Oh, like for sure. And that, that's martial arts and just being in such a, especially a family-oriented gym. Like I've been around my family, like we're very close yeah. and it's just... Yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to choose, uh, chose any other sport to do. No, you guys, man, are, are an amazing family. Like, just how close you all are, you know what I mean? It's, um, it's, it's a tribute to you and, you know, your wife, you know, to Ange. Um, like, them kids, they just love what they do, you know what I mean? I'm watching a young bloke with his, um, mate, he, he's a little legend and a little acrobat as well, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, my little brother is killing it. He just went over to um, America and competed in the... Pan Am's uh, Kids Amateur World Tournament, and um, he got silver, and he's 14 years old, travelling with my family to California, or it was in Florida, and I told him, even though he didn't get gold, I was like, you know, that's such a cool experience at 14 years old to be able to travel and compete in something that you love. There's things you pass on to your kids. What do you think you've passed on the, to Jazzy? Hopefully uh, work ethic. Um, she would have seen me preparing for my fights and running and training and sweating and losing weight and there was no shortcuts on, on the way to success. So, and then she's taken that same approach in all her training and she, every day people ask me, like, oh, aren't you afraid that Jazzy's competing? It's like, no, I watch her train every single day. I know how hungry she is and how much determination she has. If she was missing days and cutting corners and, and not up to the task, I'd be very uh, cautious of what was happening. But, um, because I believe in her skill set so much, I, I think she can be a world champion for sure. I, I think you've, she's genetically got your toughness. There's no doubt about that. And her mum's too. For sure. Like, when did you realise, like, what superstars your parents are? At what age did you realise? Uh, it was quite young. But people still ask me all the time, and I'm like, oh, yeah, my dad. Yeah. I forget about him. Because yeah. <laughs> people ask, like, what is it like having such a famous dad or someone so well-known in the sport? I'm like... Oh, well, he's just my dad. (laughs) For me, it's a little different because it's just my dad. But of course, like, when I look back and I see of all of the amazing things that he's done, it's like, oh, no, that's pretty inspiring. So a funny story. So when my son was born, Jesse, he was going to be born in uh, February 2008. And I had the opportunity to compete in um, Japan early 2008. And Angie, oh, this is probably my last time I can travel before the baby comes. And after he comes born, I won't be able to do anything for about a year or so. Um, Can I come to Japan with you? So, yeah, for sure. We'll, we'll go as a family. And then uh, Jazzy was about five years old at that stage. Yeah, we got to, we, we were there a week before the fight. And then uh, because not many Japanese people see Westerners either, mm-hmm. so everybody went for dinner or lunch and then everyone was just um, looking over Jazzy and trying to touch her and like a little doll. I had my fight and then ended up knocking out the gentleman round four. Uh, blood broke his nose, blood everywhere, knocked him out cold. And he's lying on the canvas uh, with a big pool of blood coming out of his head. And I'm jumping around the ring, happy celebrations. And I look over in the corner and there's Jazzy, bawling her eyes out. It's like <laughs> a, a, the most emotional little girl I've ever seen. 
I ran over to her and I quickly picked her up in my arms like, Jazzy, what's wrong? She goes, why did you kill him? <laughs> she actually thought he was a dead person <laughs> laying on the canvas. <laughs> I said, I oh, know, this is what daddy does for a living. This is, this is my job. This is how I make money. Yeah. Yeah, but you didn't have to kill him, though. <laughs> it was, and then um, it was so funny because Angie took Jazzy down to the change room to meet the, my opponent and he picked her up and gave her a big hug and told her, oh, I'm fine, I'm okay. I'm not dead. I'm yeah. not dead, I'm not dead. That was a relief. That would have been. <laughs> that was the real eye-opener for Jazzy at that stage or, or what daddy does for a living. And yeah. I will never forget that day. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember it? You still I remember, remember it, yeah. yeah. Wow. Very vividly. You talk about your legacy and um, a big part of your legacy is sitting right next to you. Yes. Now, I'm very proud. Uh, so, so Jazzy's 19. Uh, my son's 14 and my uh, other little girl, she's eight. My little girl does jiu-jitsu. My son um, jiu-jitsu and hopefully MMA soon. And then Jazzy's uh, Muay Thai boxing and then hopefully um, uh, MMA down the line as well. So to have my wife successful, myself successful, and now now that I've retired and, and stepped back from the competing, my ultimate dream is to see my kids walk in my footsteps and, and live the same lifestyle that I've been happy to live. There's no better lifestyle to, to wake up in the morning and have that passion to get out on the road and do your runs and do your pads and do your training um, not having a, a full-time job and just um surviving off your fights is uh thrilling and exhilarating so what's next for jazz what's the path for you um so we uh last year i had a hip uh hip surgery so i just had a hip arthroscopy as i've been doing muay thai competing for 10 years. You're a veteran. So my so my hips were kind of just um, letting me know that it was been a little while. Yeah. So now, since and I've You've had, had hip problems too, haven't you, mate? Yeah, thanks, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> and I've got a knee injury as well, and I'm going to thank my mum for that one. Yeah. So and Angie's has got the bad knees. She's isn't got it? the bad knees, she's got the bad hips, so that's So you've got the, the Cornellic. Yeah. <laughs> But um, it's kind of been a blessing in disguise as I've um, made my transition into boxing, professional boxing. And you're a and natural and you got it genetically from your dad, I must say. Thank you. And um, yeah, so I'm 2-0 and now. My first fight for, was for the Australian super flyweight title and um, I got the win. It was eight rounds uh, versus Nicola Costello. Yeah, I'm, I'm keen to see what the future holds. And you're with Ace Promotions. I'll give uh, Angela DiCarlo a big yes. shout out. Top like Ange, a good mate of mine. Great promotion. And uh, and really looks after his fighters. Oh, for sure. Yeah, really, really happy to be a part of um, Ace Boxing. And I'm really excited. So I've got a three-fight contract. I've fought um, uh, my, my last one was the first one a part of the contract. So I've got two more on Ace. And then, yeah, I'll be pretty excited to see where the future holds. I've, I've definitely found a new love for boxing and I didn't think I would enjoy boxing this much but I love it. it. I remember you talking to me, mum you're a bit reluctant with boxing at first yeah. but then you just got you got the bug. Jazz I'm a big fan of your boxing you know your skills and I, I see a lot of your dad in you you know what I mean it's that just come forward and just bash him sort of type style <laughs> and um, there's no backward step in you and um, you know and I also been to the gym a couple of times and I acknowledge like your mother's like the backbone of that gym and she, she's just all over it, you know what I mean? And when I said I wanted to sponsor you, she she she, she was all over it and um, met, you know, organising the, the classes and that. And it'd be hard for you to do what you do without a mate. Yeah, very lucky. One of the main uh, things that drew me to Angie was when I got to Vegas, seeing her uh, teaching the classes and uh, her interactions with the students. And I thought to myself, not only is this girl beautiful but she can also make me a lot of money <laughs> so her business uh, sense was like oh yeah she 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 had that the it factor to, to run a successful business so i thought oh 
So when we got back to Australia and we opened the gym together, yeah, she just knew how to structure the classes and structure the students and, and work out the timetables. And yeah, she's definitely the backbone behind everything. And I, w- I wouldn't be where I am without her um, knowledge. Well, a successful fighter works well to structured. Do you agree? Like, you know, I, I know. You know, I, I've done 23 years in prison. The only thing that works for me is structure. You know what I mean? That's what I found. I come out here, created a good structure, and my life's successful today. You know what I mean? Structure is everything and anything, isn't it? Yep, I definitely. Just briefly, mate, how did it, uh, your last fight, you, you you come out and you got a, you know, I think uh, you fought Anthony Chokmundine and um, would, would that that would have been your biggest payday in boxing? Uh, yes. Before Mundine, the highest prize I ever made was 6000 Just f- through uh, friends of friends of friends, Someone said, hey, would you ever think about fighting Mundine? Sure. I hadn't, hadn't had a boxing fight in um, 17 years at that stage. I didn't own any boxing boots, didn't have a green cup, but yeah, sure. And then the next day, the promoter rings me, hey, opportunities come up. Um, do you want to, want to fight Anthony? We'll give you $50,000. Holy shit, 50 grand. Um, yeah, for sure. Let's do it. So it was, it was booked for 10 threes, um, no titles on the line, just uh, just the opportunity to, to fight the, the legend. And we're going to do it at a skill park on the Gold Coast on the football field. And uh, at that stage, we're having the bushfires. And all the smoke was coming into the stadium. And uh, they couldn't have people sitting in the, in the stadium with, uh, with so much smoke insulation. So they moved to the Brisbane. We did a few uh, press conferences. And um, Anthony was awesome. He was like... Uh, he knows how to sell a show. Yeah, but uh, every time I picked up the paper or, or read an interview, I'm going, oh, here we go. And then I read it. And it's like, oh, I'm a big fan of John Wayne. It's such an honor for me to fight him. What the heck? Usually Anthony's like full of controversy and, yeah. and he had nothing but good things to say. I like, this is so bizarre. This is so weird. Uh, I have no animosity towards Anthony whatsoever. In fact, I, I consider him my friend now. Even though we fought, um, we, we talk to each other online. Um, he gives me updates every now and again. It's like, I can't believe that you're friggin' liking my things on Instagram. This is insane. This is so cool. And um, we had our fight. Um, we went the 10 rounds. I, I just had to make sure that I, I was fit enough to pressure him for 10 rounds. If I tried to play the boxing game, he, he was too intellectually clever and too, had too many tricks up his sleeve. But if I could push him against the ropes and, and um, just constant pressure to not let him breathe, um, I knew that I could um, get him over the line because I studied his career. In his last three fights, he'd only had one fight a year, one fight a year, one fight a year, one fight a year for the last three years. So I knew he wasn't active. So I knew that if I if I applied lots of pressure, that I could drown him in um, cardio. And then, sure enough, that's what happened. Um, I just uh, made sure that I didn't give him room to move, and just kept him on the ropes for the whole ten rounds, and, and ended up getting the the victory by decision. So yeah, definitely my my one of my biggest wins, and one of the ones I'm most proud of. That when I mentioned the people that um, I beat Anthony. I get high fives off all these different strangers and yeah. every, everyone, the whole of Australia is cheering for me to win. So it was a big, big happiness. He's actually, everyone that knows him, you're like all these other ones, he's got a lot of haters, but anyone that knows him will say he's a top bloke. Oh, for sure. And you, and I, you know, I, I know, I've seen him go into Long Bay Prison and he comes out with no shoes on because he's given his shoes away, he's given his shirt away, he's given his shorts away, and he's got a pair of jail greens on and a jail shirt and a yeah. pair of thongs. You know what I mean? That's the type of guy he is. So yeah, kudos to uh, Anthony Chokmundine. Let's um, touch on, mate, retirement, you know what I mean? Let's touch on that because I see something in you when we talk about, like, you're just like one of those pit bulls that ain't allowed to fight no more, you know? How do you handle that, mate? Like, how, what's the mindset? Yeah, it's it's a um, bit rough. Um, considering I've been doing it for 35 years and then all of a sudden to not wake up with that purpose of uh, having the training or having to... Uh, that next fight to look forward to or that next prize money coming coming in. Do you feel like a party is gone? Oh, yeah, I feel that I'm 
missing that that spark every day when I wake up. When you have a fight date for ten weeks, all you're doing is thinking about your next opponent. You have complete that ten weeks. You finish the fight, and now you have got the next opponent to look forward to. Getting a six pack again. Yeah, that's a big and then, part of it. And then once once that is eliminated, all there is left to now do to do is get old. Yeah, how do, but how do you like mentally? Like, what, what's the mindset? Is it hard to accept? Because like I'm hearing, seeing you now, I can see hurt in your eyes. Like, there's definitely hurt in your eyes. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, words, you can't put into words. Part of your soul dies when you retire. Yeah, that, that was my whole purpose in life, and and once that purpose is eliminated, everything else just seems superficial. Yeah, it just seems a bit unfair in life, doesn't it? Like some bloke, like you should be allowed to be fighting to 105. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like. For me as an observer, like a, a fan, you're seeing someone in there that's just loving what they're doing, yeah. getting punched in the face yeah. and punching people in the face and you know what I mean? And that joy, you're honestly genuine. You're one of those sportsmen that genuinely loved every second of what you did. And then you feed off the, the crowd's participation too. The more they cheer, the more you feel the excitement, the goosebumps and the hair standing out from the back of your neck. I remember watching you do an extra uh, exhibition in uh, Cavill Avenue and I met Rob, because I know where I bought, I knew your boxing trainer, Rob Waterhouse, really well. He's like Mount Royalty where I grew up and he, just a ripper of a guy and and he introduced me and he said, this bloke here is just a ripper of a bloke and he, had, he loved you. He loved you and he said, but you'll never find a fighter that loves the game more than him. That's that was that's what he said about you, you know. And he said you'll never find someone who has a passion like this bloke about anything, you know. Before, when you got a ten week camp, so every night when you go to bed, you lay on, the, on your pillow and you're thinking about game plans and you're thinking about tactics and you're thinking about work rate and cardio and I've got to do this and you're driven. Once the handbrake goes on and there's no longer that desire to to have to. Because you're not just competing, you're, you're surviving. Yeah. It's, a, it's a matter of life and death. If you don't do it, if you, you can actually die on the ring if you don't do this com- successfully. So, I was a bank robber, mate. I used to yeah. love robbing banks, right? I yeah. love it. It was a frill. Yeah. It was a massive frill. Coming out of there and knowing you could get your head blown off, that was a frill that people mightn't understand. But I, And a lot of people wouldn't understand your frill of what you do, getting punched in the face and punching people in the face. I, I know what you, how you feel. I, I, I can't do that. Well, I, I just don't want to do the jail, to be quite honest. Isn't it? <laughs> the food's horrible. <laughs> but um, I see it in you, and I, and, I, and, like, and, I, and I just see the hurt and pain in your eyes. I've talked to you about it at the gym and that sort of stuff. And um, but What do you do to protect yourself against that? So I have the, the gym and burly heads that I'm looking after. Uh, the classes keep me busy. Um, I have about 30 fighters underneath me that I'm preparing for the competing as well. Um, the kids the kids have been uh, very lucky to, to work hard and be successful at what they do. So, yeah, just pour all my energy into them now and hopefully yeah. they can get to live the same lifestyle, travel and compete and, and hopefully make enough money so they can survive comfortably as well. Yeah, man, you're an amazing guy, man. Amazing family. The Parr family follow uh, Jazzy Parr, boxer. She, I have no doubt. I'm a, I'm a big boxing fan, and I know a little bit about it. I have no doubt that Jazzy's going to be a world champion in the not too distant future. John Wayne Parr, Jazzy Parr, thank you for being on the sticker. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us.